1: Hello everybody and welcome back to New Books in Middle Eastern Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Tuval Mende, the host of the channel, and today we are speaking to Paraska Toland-Skilnik about her new book, Maghreb Noir, The Militant Artist of North Africa and the Struggle for a Pan-African Postcolonial Future. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you. And... um, Maybe we can start with uh how uh, that you tell us about about yourself, how you became an associate professor, and, assistant, uh, assistant, <laughs> yeah. and uh, how did you start working on the book?
0: Thank you, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Um, so I think my interest in um this project really is about the intersection between politics and art, um, the ways in which artists are political, the ways in which art brings them to politics, but also sort of the ways in which politics and art interact in their in their lifetime, um, both on sort of the micro scale, like artists, but also on the macro scale looking at like governments um, and the and the way they interact with their artists. When I started doing work, when I was an a undergraduate, um, my senior thesis was on Iran, the art scene in Iran um, in the 1970s, like post-revolution or 1980s, more post-revolution and the relationship between the government and various visual artists in Iran and then the sort of art scene and in the Gulf. And I was really um, fascinated. I did my first oral history interviews um, for that senior project. Um, And then when I was um, doing a master's thesis at the École des études en sciences sociales in France, um, in 2013, 2014, I started doing comparative work on Senegal and Tunisia and looking at how, um, um Senghor and Bourguiba had each contributed to creating, um, uh, a, um, a sort of official art school, um, for the Senegalese nation and for the Tunisian nation. Um, and, um. That's when I really started becoming interested in the division between North Africa and Sub-Saharan Africa, or I try to not use actually Sub-Saharan Africa, more North Africa and the rest of the continent, um, and started noticing how little work there was on these regions, you know, sort of a trans-regional space. Um, A lot of the work was on... um, if there was work on sort of west africa and north africa as a, as a as a region um it was often um by geographers or people who were working on the trans-saharan slave trade or the middle ages and there was very little work on interactions between the maghreb and the rest of the african continent in the in the like 1960s or in the 20th century you know even um and um and I started seeing this as a colonial division, something that the French had really worked hard to, um, of course, I'm not saying it's only a colonial division, we can talk a little bit more about that, but, um, but the, you know, the French had really worked to sort of create this division and they drew this line in the sand between North Africa and, and the rest of the continent. Um, And it was while I was doing work um, for my master's thesis that I discovered the Pan-African Festival of Algiers of 1969, which was really, uh, it became this sort of uh, fascination. Um, I mean, it was sort of an incredible moment, right? It's the same time as uh, Neil Armstrong is landing on the moon, like basically almost the same day. There's people from across the world gathering in Algiers and, you know, there's, there's famous people like the Cleavers were there, you know, Black Panthers were in Algiers, but also... I think, you know, the first rendition, Nina Simone's first rendition of Ne Me Quitte Pas, um, the song by Jacques Brel, um, was at the Pan-African Festival of Algiers. Um, you know, Miriam Makeba performed there. So it's sort of this amazing moment when all these artists that I, I really liked um, came together. So I was really fascinated by that moment. Um. And when I first started, I couldn't find that much on the boat. The Pan-African Festival, there were you know, various things online, blogs, pictures that people had published. Um, I knew there was a film by William Klein, but it was very difficult to find. I think I had to go to Paris 13, in Saint-Denis, the, like, that was the only place that they actually had a copy of the DVD. And even then, the DVD wasn't very good quality. They re-edited the, f- the film um, a few years ago. I have, the, I have the new version now. It's It is much better quality. Um, and so I got excited about this and I started doing some oral history projects I collaborated with um, the Centre National de Recherche Scientifique they were doing this sort of big oral history project about different um, Pan-African festivals there was the 66th festival in Dakar the World Festival of Black Arts first World Festival of Black Arts the PenF of Algiers and then um, a festival in Zaire and um, the second World Festival of Black Arts in Lagos um, in 77. Um, so I started, um, collaborating with them and I gave a bunch of my oral histories to that project. Um, and I started realizing that, that not everybody was excited about the Pan-African Festival, right? At first I had been really sort of dazzled by this moment. Um, but actually a lot of people who were there were really, um, um, disenchanted with the Algerian government's role in Pan-Africanism. So the the story, the book sort of became a story. um, I wanted to move away from the sort of official history of Pan-Africanism and look at um, the underground stories of Pan-Africanism. I I was still convinced that there were Pan-African encounters at these events, that they had happened, but that they didn't necessarily happen sort of in the main main, um, halls, right? Maybe more in the backstage. so that's that's how I got to this book. Um, I was born in France, and and or sorry, I wasn't born in France, but I was raised in France and and spent most of my life um, in France until I came to to the U.S. for college. So it was also it was a personal um, interest in in sort of um, in um, in the circulation of knowledge and
1: decolonization and 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 um, and, and the like. Yeah. Thank you so much. And coming maybe right to the title of the book, Maghreb Noir, why did you choose it uh, to call it this way?
0: Um, yeah, I. Um it was a nod to, um, to the literature on on uh, Black Paris, Black London. I'm thinking, for example, of Mark Matera's book, Black London, um, but also a number of books on, on Paris Noir. Um, it's also sort of meant as a dig at French colonists who thought of uh, the Maghreb as l'Afrique blanche. Um, so this was sort of a, you know, this is not l'Afrique blanche. It's l'Afrique noire aussi, uh, also Black Africa, um, also, you know, um, And I also sort of liked the nod towards, you know, the noir literature. Um, But so, yeah, there's a series of of decisions. And um, I was hesitant to keep the word Maghreb because I was worried that, you know, a lot of people wouldn't necessarily know, which is why the word North Africa is also in the subtitle to sort of place the book for those who aren't as aware of the word um, Maghreb. Um, And the cover, um, I really like the way the title interacts with the cover. Um, The cover is actually... um, um, mirrored off uh, of the documentary I was mentioning earlier by William Klein on the Pan-African Festival of Algiers. Um, so it's sort of a, a reprise of, of the cover of that documentary, um, of the poster for that documentary. Um, so I lo- really like the way that the, um, that the editors managed to, to put the title inside the sort of the African continent. Um,
1: yeah. Great. And um, you talk in the book about uh certain kind of group of people who you dub as the Maghreb generation. And uh could you explain to us who they were and what they did?
0: Yeah, of course. Um so the Maghreb generation were um sort of a fluctuating group of people. Um and um, and I'll get back to that in a second. But they were people from the Maghreb, from um uh the United States, from the Caribbean um, from Angola, from Mozambique, from Senegal. Um, you know, some of the, the people that I look at, for example, are, um, are uh, Abdel Latif Laabi, Moroccan uh, Moroccan um, poet, uh, Jean Sénac, an Algerian poet, Mario de Andrade, Mario Pinto de Andrade from Angola, Marcelino dos Santos from Mozambique, René de Peste from Haiti, Ted Jones from the U.S. Um, and the, the, the common... Um, The common sort of denominator between all these people is that they spend a significant amount of time in the Maghreb in the 60s and 70s and that thinking about the Maghreb in um, as a sort of pan African space was a large part, played a large part in their political and artistic development in the 60s and 70s. That's where, you know, for for those who weren't from the Maghreb, they made important artistic strides in the Maghreb. They made some of the movies, for example, another one of the characters that I look at is Sarah Maldoror, and some of the most important movies, the ones that she's most known for, she actually made in the Maghreb, um, movies like Zambizanga. Um, or she made financed, sorry, was financed by uh, by Maghreb governments. And while she was living in the Maghreb, even if she actually filmed in other places, um, or Monogambe, um which was actually uh, shot with Algerian uh, Algerian uh, actors playing the Portuguese uh, colonists. Um, so you know, so so the Maghreb played a central sort of role in their artistic, but also their political development. It was sort of a, for, for especially for those from the from the Portuguese colonies. Um, it was a first. Um, it was their first experience of sort of being on a decolonized African land, right? Um, so there was a sense of um, a possibility, right? Of uh, um, of, um, of, uh, you know, what could they do from here? It was sort of coming back to the af- African continent, um, getting the support at first from, uh, from Maghreb governments, um, sometimes very, you know, very practical support, um, you know, uh, shipments and armaments, uh, access to the press, access to, um, access to, uh, to the radio, um, money, uh, passports, things like that. Um, uh, so yeah, so the Maghreb paid a sort of a central role in their political development. Um, they all spent a significant amount of time in the Maghreb, they lived there, they, um, had sex there. Uh, Sex is a, is a big part of the book as well, sexual interactions. Um, and, and I can talk about that later, um, the role that sort of sex played in, in people's imaginations of Pan-Africanism. Um, so I've identified a few members that I've sort of regrouped under this name, the Maghreb generation. Um, but of course, there's many more people that could probably fit into this sort of uh, category that whose lives I haven't followed, um, and whose lives are still, you know, um, sort of their their archives are still out there, um, and, and we could still um, do a lot of work to research them.
1: And um, what platforms did they use in order to communicate with each other? So you told us that. There are quite a variety of people who could fit into the Maghreb generation. So, how um yeah, how did they communicate with uh, with each other?
0: Um, so in a variety of ways. Um, one of the first ways um I think that they communicate with each other is sort of a more traditional um, journals or or zines. Um, when I was doing a lot of uh, when I was doing all these interviews, a lot of the um, the people were telling me and and keep in mind, I'm interviewing people who are, you know, mostly in their 80s or maybe even 90s. um, And they kept on telling me about the ditto machine, which they kept on saying, oh, you probably never heard about the ditto machine, which indeed I had never heard about, at least the first time. But then, of course, I kept on hearing about the dittoing machine. So um, it it would be interesting to see the role of certain technologies in sort of these movements. But, um, you know, they would say, oh, we dittoed all these, you know, zines essentially like little magazines which were sometimes you know only published uh you know a thousand or two thousand and then sort of distributed through their own networks, right? Shipped off to friends in Paris and Algiers and Haiti, um, or um or even distributed to people on the streets. Um so journals um, like uh souf in Morocco, um, like Mensachem which came out of of, of, um, of Lisbon at first, um um, you know, there's a, there's a number of journals that, um, that, um, that we could talk about. Um, the radio also played a large a role. My, my third chapter focuses on a radio show that um, Algerian poet Jean Sénac started in, um, in Algiers called uh, Poetry on All Front, or Poésie sur tous les fronts, um, in which he brought, you know, he brought a bunch of the members of the Maghreb generation to come um, talk on his radio show. He interviewed them, he read their poetry... Um, he had them read their poetry in French, in English, in, um, in, uh, Portuguese and Arabic. So it was sort of a multilingual show. Um, and, um, so radio was an important part. And then as a um, throughout the book, I sort of traced the evolution away from poetry and towards film. Um, you know, a number of the people that I look at sort of, um, decided that the written press or the written word um, didn't have the reach that they wanted, right? They were able to ditto only a thousand copies and, and pass it out. And only the people who could read, um, French or Arabic, uh, or Portuguese could actually have access to that. So, um, so a number of the, the artists that I look at turn towards film because they think, oh, film is going to have a, a bigger impact. And of course the problem with film is that, um, it's very expensive to produce, right? Um, and so at first, um, you know, many of them complain that they're um, that uh, they don't have the, the resources or that they have to ask the French or the Portuguese for resources. Uh, and um, the kind of movies that they make are really sort of homemade. You know, they, they're pasting together bits of film. They're cutting like film from other documentaries and pasting them together and creating a reel like that. And, they're, you know, they're um, they're sort of improvising um, much in the same way that they were improvising with the journals. Um, and then, of course, so those are the sort of physical um, places, uh, platforms, um, physical or, you know, or sort of, uh, uh, yeah, physical. Um, and then there's the moments, um, you know, the spaces um, that they're that they're meeting at. And what I argue is that they do end up meeting at a lot of these um Official Pan African events, um, things like the Pan African Festival of Algiers, events like the Pan African Festival of Algiers, or the Journée Cinématographique de Carthage um, in Tunisia, which was a, a film festival that started in '66 and is still ongoing, or the Havana Tricontinental, um, and sort of they, you know, they they are in the rooms of these official symposiums, you know, participating in cocktails or talking at you know of, official symposiums or going to exhibits and things like that. Um, so they're actually communicating via these governments to some extent, but also, of course, backstage, right? There's a lot at a lot of these events. Um, there's also times when the artists are um, ending up amongst themselves in somebody's apartment, um, in a bar, in um, the streets, in a cafe. And they're having other types of conversations that are less mediated by um, the desires of their governments, um, so that's sort of one of the other spaces that I explore. Um, and of course, I talk about how difficult difficult it is to actually figure out what's going on in those spaces because, you know, they didn't uh, have TikTok videos of their parties or their conversations. Right. So uh, so we sort of have to imagine um, um, uh, from what little bits of evidence we have what actually happened in these back back stages.
1: Thank you so much. Uh, so we can imagine a bit how the Maghreb generation kind of lived, and how they communicated with, with each other. Um, it would be interesting to see how they express themselves, and in what ways did they articulate their ideas, or what uh, inspiration they drew from their writings. And so could you tell us a bit about that?
0: Yeah. Um, so. Um... As I argue in the book, a lot of the people that I'm looking at um, really started with um, poetry, or with film, or with visual arts. You know, they, um, you know, for example, in my first chapter, I look at um, a group of of Luso African um, 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 uh, militant artists. Um, Uh, Mario de Andrade, Marcelino dos Santos, Amica Cabral, who um, all end up in Lisbon um, at the Casa dos Estudiantes do Imperio um, around the same time. And what they do is they start these sort of they start an Africa center um, where they start giving sort of poetry lectures or, um, you know, readings um, and and. Um, you know, they 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 read Leopold Sedar Senghor's "Anthologie uh, de la littérature uh, noire et malgache." Um, they read Nicolas Guillen, um, a Cuban poet. They they read Jorge Amado, a Brazilian poet. They read Nassim Naci Hikmet, um, uh, a Turkish poet. Um, and, um, and they pass these books around, right? They're, they I mean, Mario D'Andrade talks about, you know, his copy of, uh, uh, Anthologie de la Poésie, Noire uh, Noir et Malgache by Léopold Sédar Senghor, ends up in the hands of a lot of people and he, he eventually loses it. Basically, they're lending these books. Him. Um, and, um, it's through reading these that they, um, they become sort of um, conscious, or Mario D'Andrade talks about, uh, we become conscious of our own blackness and of our own sort of the ways in which our minds have been colonized. Um, And and so they organize these poetry readings and then they uh, detect what Mario De Andrade calls les éléments conscients or the conscious elements um as in the people who are sort of politicized by this poetry and they agitate them essentially like activists do today you know they they say okay well now you've you know you've um, you've been reading this poetry aren't you angry about the way you're being treated aren't you angry about this and sort of from there they're able to politicize um you know a number of their comrades or peers um in these in these spaces um so i think you know we haven't I think as historians we we don't necessarily see um, how much literature and the arts can sort of have an influence on people's political trajectories and their decisions and the ways that they be you know. What they've read, um, like, not just, you know, political manifestos of like Mao's red book, which they read also, or the Communist Manifesto, but also just poetry, you know, um, uh, sort of uh, agitates them, makes them political. Um, and uh, and the ever important thing is that it's not sort of... You know, it doesn't end there. It's not like uh, they they read poetry, they become political, and then they join the guerrilla and go fight, and then they never think about poetry again, right? No, people are continuing to write poetry. Um, there's a really interesting part of um, um, the journal Soufle Anfaz, the Moroccan journal, um, which was Published from, um, the 60s, uh, 66 to early 70s. Um, I think it's its 19th edition. Um, has, um, a special edition called Afrique, même combat. Africa, one, um, and only, um, sort of battle. Um, and in that um, in that edition, they interview or they they basically open up the edition to Mario De Andrade and Marcelino dos Santos to publish a number of documents from the Frelimo or the MPLA or various sort of um, groups who are still fighting against colonialism on the African continent. And I think it's in one of the documents that um, I would have to check that Marcelino dos Santos um, uh, brings to the to the table. It's a Frelimo document in which you know it says. Um, Uh, every peasant is now taking the pen to write poetry. You know, it's part of the sort of political move is to also, you know, the Europeans have sort of um, separated the creation of art from the masses. And now, you know, everybody spends only one hour, you know, uh, enjoying art in a museum or at a poetry reading, but really art is in each and every one of us. And um, poetry is in each and one of us And, and the 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 sort of the revolution is allowing us to find the poetry within us, and it's no longer just this art of the elite, but it's it's within you know each peasant's heart essentially. Um, so um, so I think it's important to see how poetry both led them to sort of political work, but also continues beyond the sort of politicization. Um, yeah.
1: And uh, you mentioned that you interviewed quite a lot of people. For the book uh, and for your research um, what did they think about the maghreb generation today and what is kind of the legacy of this group
0: well so many of the people that i write about um have been um haven't often been sort of the subject of historical inquiry um, you know, some of them. Uh, you know, uh, people in, in literature and film have have written have written. Um, you know, very good things. Um, you know, very good texts and, and very good research about them. Um, but um, but not much in history. And um, and so I think you know, and and some of them you know to you know have have had very little written about them um, and are sort of trying to. Um, but are still conscious of sort of the historical um, significance of the work that they've done, um, um, and are are trying to figure out what to do with their archives. When I was in in um, you know Sharia for example, one of the founders of cinématographique du Carthage, who is really an important figure in the Tunisian um, in the Tunisian um, film sort of world, um, and 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 recognizably, you know, things have been written about him. He's published a lot of texts um, about a cinema and about Tunisian film and about the relationship of the state with film. Um, but for example, his archives are completely, you know, his son, Kaiser Sharia has his archives in, in, in Tunis and basically had to dedicate an entire room in his house to these archives, you know, taking away, of course, from the living space that he himself and his family have now, um, because he knows that these archives are important, but hasn't really received any support to figure out, you know, what to do with them. Um, he himself has organized them. Um, but you know, had doesn't necessarily have, you know, what we need to digitize them, um, kind of material can be quite expensive um, nor is there really necessarily like a resting place for 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 this material um, you know I've, I've been um, in contact a lot with Anushka de Andrade who's um, and Henda Ducados who are Sarah Maldoror and Marie de Andrade's daughters um, and they have a similar you know Sarah Maldoror you know is considered one of the biggest you know female um, uh, directors in African um, cinema and yet you know, a lot of her movies still haven't been, um, sort of, uh, uh, you know, a lot of them are in v- still very bad quality. You know, it's because of the daughters who are working, um, her are working, uh, uh, with, you know, are working very hard to sort of, uh, recover, uh, the legacies of, of their mother that, you know, some of the movies have recently been sort of, um, re, um, how do you say, revamped or reworked. Um, so, you know, I think, um, the legacy behind the microgeneration generation so far is not much really, but I think, you know, their descendants um, and, and other, and other historians that I've been working work, are, uh, with are with are, 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 working on, 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 um, on uh, maintaining their legacy and, and talking about their political work.
1: And I think it's always difficult to think about what to leave in the book and what to leave out or what material to use. So, Uh, What difficulties did you come across while working on the book? What experiences did you have?
0: Yeah, thank you. So at first, um, you know... uh, the first difficulty I felt was the lack of sources. You know, I remember when I first started doing research. I started in Morocco. Um, I had a grant from um, the American Institute of Maghreb Studies, and I had decided to go to Morocco first. And um, I get, uh, I come to the, um, and I had read stuff about the Luso African revolutionaries in Rabat, but hadn't found anything written about them. Like nothing, just mentions, you know, and hadn't found any place where there were sources. And so I wanted to go to Morocco and find the official archives of, you know, the and find, you know, where they were in the official archives. And um I got to the to the National Archives of Morocco and they said, Oh, we don't have anything post nineteen sixty. Um, and, you know, you, you, uh, you know, they burn down or there's nothing, there's nothing for you to look at. And actually, um, sort of ironically, the guy told me to go look at the diplomatic archives in Nantes, which is where I'm from. Um, so he sort of was sending me home to look at. And of course, so then, you know, I did, I did go to the archives in Nantes. And but of course, they're written by the French. Right. So they're they're And, and they do comment on, you know, a number of Luso-African revolutionaries being in Rabat. And they're quite worried about Rabat, you know, Morocco's relationship to the rest of the African continent Continent and whether they're hosting revolutionaries and the Portuguese are asking the French questions like hey what's going on in Morocco like why are our you know you are rebels in Morocco uh, so so they're sort of worried um, but of course, you know everything's filtered through this the French lens, um, the diplomatic lens, and what they think is is important um, to record. Um, so, so I when I you know first month in Morocco, I was basically sort of bumping around looking for things, not really finding anything. Um, and then I started talking. I, I sort of started doing interviews. Um, you know, a few at first, and then uh, interviews are sort of like dominoes, right? You 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 interview one person, and they say, "Hey, wait, I know somebody you should interview. You should talk to." And then you know they would put me in touch, and then I would talk to a third person and a fourth person, and sort of sort of um, you know went from there. Um, and, um, and the people that I talked to were always very, very kind and very helpful. Um, there were, um, there were a few people who, you know, there were a few missed opportunities, a few interviews that I had, uh, wanted to do, but then, you know, last minute cancellations and things like that. So I, you know, I'm not totally sure everybody wanted to speak to me actually. Um, um but, um, yeah, so, so at first I started taking, you know, interviews with anybody, um, anybody I could find and. And to be honest, you know, some of the interviews were very difficult. Um, a few of the interviews were with people who were in their late 80s, early 90s who were losing their memories, who maybe even had, you know, forms of dementia or Alzheimer's, which made them difficult to work. You know, my, my grandmother had Alzheimer's. I knew what it, you know, I, I was used to, to talk, but you know, sometimes that can be a very difficult situation because you're reminding people of how much they've forgotten. And sometimes they're not happy about that. Um, and, um, and it, you know, it's humanly very difficult. Sometimes there were moments where I, I felt really, you know, especially at, at times when, you know, um, I was going through sort of a similar, sort of similar relationship with my, my grandmother trying to remind her of things or, you know, the, seeing the, these people struggling to remember made me feel very, very sad and worried that I was, um, that I was, um, you know, sort of um, triggering them or, you know um, um, so that was humanly um, very difficult at times. Um, I think the interviewing, you know, it's an amazing source, um, but it does come with, a whole other host of of issues that perhaps we don't talk about enough like um and also the there's sort of a responsibility in writing about people that you've actually interviewed um, and and a hesitancy towards um for critique um in a way that you may not have from somebody you just met on paper right Um, it it introduces a whole new sort of, um, set of expectations in a relationship. Um, and I found that to be difficult to navigate, but also very rewarding. You know, some of the best parts of this book were the, were the interviews, um, the most sort of fun parts, you know, sometimes it could be like really fun to talk to somebody for two hours who was funny and, and charming and, you know, would, you know, often serve me tea and, and, uh, and, um, have, you know, pastries and things like that. So it, it, you know, it could be very rewarding, um. Um, materially as well. Um but but sometimes were quite difficult. Um but so the first few months I think you know I, I felt like things were sort of running dry. And then little by little um you know as as I got put into contact with more and more people um I was I was able to find um a, a lot more stuff. And by the end I had you know a lot of, of documents. Um, and, um, you know, one of my goals is to figure out ways in which to help the various people that I talk to as children, particularly, um, figure out how to archive those documents. Um, because a lot of them are still sort of, you know, they know that these documents are important, um, but they don't really know what to do with them. Um, and they certainly don't have, um, the sort of resources necessary for like large scale digitization projects. Um, so, so um, so yeah, so that's one of the sort of, that was one of the challenging uh, parts of the book, both at the first not having much and then at the end having so much that I, you know, needed to do something with it, yeah.
1: And um, why did you choose this particular era and this particular region? What were your interests in uh, getting to more knowledge about this era?
0: Yeah, so um, I was... I've always been fascinated by revolutionary moments. I mean, as I said, during my undergraduate thesis, I worked on 79 in Iran, I was always Sort of fascinated by um by moments when it was possible to imagine a better world imagine a different world i've always been fascinated also by like um post-apocalyptic literature or things like that you know sort of the the um um the moments when everything all everything that's um, been accepted seems potentially you know could be overturned or all the sort of the the, the rules could be changed um um, so I was always fascinated by this moment of decolonization. Um, but I was also not convinced that uh, there was such a huge um, sort of rupture between the colonial and the post-colonial moment, maybe not as much as we would like to see. Um, and as a French citizen and as somebody who grew up in France and grew up at a, in, in going to a French public school learning about the history of Algeria, the history of colonization of Africa, um, uh, but, you know, through the sort of... Um, approved programs of of um of you know french curriculum um uh i i felt i always felt like there was more um more to tell um things that i wasn't hearing about in in my french curriculum um different interpretations of historical narratives you know um um, I, I I do I do remember one course uh, one class my the my in my senior year of high school my history teacher was quite good and that's the year we studied um, the war in Algeria and that's the time I that's the first time I heard the word historiography um, and we talked about different memories of the war um, Al- the Algerian memories of the war and French memories of the war. Um and I think that was when I first sort of got the spark of, you know, understanding of how history was a narrative, right? that we were telling in the present about the past. Um, and um, so so the history of of the Maghreb has always felt um, very personal to me in some ways because I'm French, I think. Um, but I also wanted to tell the story of these spaces, um, not as a story of France, you know, not a story of like, beyond France or the French imperial world or the French, you know, Francophone post-colonial world. Like the people that I'm looking at are turning away from France, you know, Um, they're deciding, you know, to sort of cut, Cut away from the imperial centers. You know, in the first chapter, you have people like Marcelino dos Santos, Mario Pinto de Andrade moving from Lisbon to Paris, and then deciding, okay, enough with these European capitals. We're going back to the African continent, um, and then they come to Rabat and to Algiers and to Tunis. Um, so I sort of also wanted to turn to, to learn a history of North Africa that sort of turned away from France and that didn't center. Um, French, uh, French ideas, or or even French spaces.
1: Thank you so much for this interesting conversation. And uh, could you maybe tell us a bit about your next project? What you are wor- currently working on r- right now?
0: Yeah. So I'm I'm I, I'm working on a number of things. Um, I um, I um, one of the Projects is a sort of an archival project. Um, I'm working with somebody at Brown and somebody in Tunisia to, um, to sort of to digitize a number of archives in Tunisia. Um, we're going to be applying to one of the U.S. UCLA Endangered Archives grants. Um, So a lot of it is sort of technical, you know, um, now figuring out how to get money to 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 sort of hire people to to do the digitization and sort of um, figure out, you know, what do we need to um, what do we need to. what kind of information do we need to to hide uh, what kind if you know if we're, if we're going to digitize things that are some of them are quite sensitive um documents um how do we you know make sure that it's still protecting the people who, who whose names are mentioned in these documents because you know much of the work I do is on the 60s and 70s some of the people are still alive and um some of them didn't necessarily have good relationships with Maghrebi governments and you know some of the Maghrebi governments including in Morocco for example are you know they are the direct descendants of Maghrebi governments from the 60s and 70s. So, so I think you know it's important to figure out ways in which to protect some of the actors here. Um, one of the other things um, I'm working on, and I'm actually going to Morocco in the spring um, to do a Casa Three, um, so a Casa for Scholars um, fellowship, to improve my um, Darija and uh, my Arabic reading skills, because I want to start looking at sort of a one of the things that I found very interesting in um, in. Um, in my work was, you know, the importance of sex um, and sexuality to um, imaginings of, of Pan-Africanism. Um, both uh, heterosexual sex, you know, um, I, I much of my fourth chapter is dedicated to um, sort of how um, uh, Black and North African uh, men imagined pan-Africanism as a woman, um, as a woman to be conquered, you know, as a black woman or as an Algerian woman and sort of thought of pan-Africanism as, um, or thought they could become pan-African through their relationships with the bodies of African women from different parts of the continent. Um, but I also, um, something that I didn't actually use in my book, but I also found some sort of, um, some homosexual, um, um, mm-hmm sources um and i'm i'm interested in exploring those more uh, particularly um you know in the archives of Jean Senac in algiers there were a number of 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 letters and and um with you know members of, with with different people across the um the maghreb and the african continent that were you know sort of rom- romantic you know letters um, um uh and um and, and so i'm 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 looking i want to look at sort of the the role of Sex and sexuality in sort of resistance movements um, in the 60s and 70s um, in in North Africa, um, and maybe up to the present. So that's some of the work I'm going to be doing on um, in in Morocco in the spring. Um, you know, it's still sort of really the beginning um, of this project. I'm also working on um, on uh, an article about Claude McKay. Um, who's sort of one of the um, the forefathers uh, of the Maghreb generation? He um, is a uh, he was a, a black American poet. Um, well, he's actually from Jamaica, but he he spent much many many years in New York. He's a member of the Harlem Renaissance, but he actually spent less time in Harlem than most of the other members of the Harlem Renaissance. He lived in in Paris, in Berlin, in London, in Russia, and then he spent five. Um, years in Morocco, um, in between, um, mostly around Tangier, but also a little in Fez and wrote some of his most prolific books, Um, sorry, sorry, he was one of the, the, the times he was most prolific was in Morocco, he, I think he wrote three books and a collection of short stories while he was there. Um, but very few people have actually written about his time in Morocco. So I'm, I'm working on an article um, about that. And he was one of the inspirations um, of the Maghreb generation. Um, you know, he and, and a number uh, you know, a, a number of the people from the Harlem Renaissance um you know, like Hughes, um, Zora Neale Hurston, um, etc., were were um, Alan Locke, were inspirations for for people of the Maghreb generation. So I'm sort of going back in history and looking at some of the um, the the early Maghreb generation, like
1: people. Yeah. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. It was really nice to talk to you.
0: Thank you so much, to